0: and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor-scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping especially for pastors and teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Discipleship Pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Carmen Imes. Carmen is a Professor of Bible at uh, Talbot School of Theology, which is at Biola in uh, California. Uh, She's been teaching there just for a little while and has taught some other places as well. She's the author of a couple of books and she's got more coming out, but she's got a book out called Bearing God's Name. That's a key uh, work of hers that's come out and definitely uh, made a name for her. And part of how I found out about her uh, through some friends of mine and friends of the show who recommended Carmen here uh, for her first time on the show. But She also has a book called uh, Praying the Psalms with Augustine and Friends. Since we're going through the Psalms this year, I thought this might be of particular interest to you all. Uh, Praying the Psalms with Augustine and Friends, it's mostly excerpts um, from uh, comments on and reflections upon the Psalms throughout the whole book of the Psalms. So I didn't know about that book till we were actually recording uh, just before I'm recording this intro. And in a. Already got on Amazon and pressed uh, pressed order on that. I'm really excited to see that one in the mail. I've ordered Bear God's Name already. I hadn't read it yet, but was excited to. She is a really great scholar of the Bible, of Old Testament in particular, of the Torah and the narratives, but as well as the Psalms. Uh, so she's really fantastic interpreter of scripture. And so I'm so happy to have her on today as we look at Psalm 82, Psalm 82, a really strange and fascinating Psalm that, that she has a a special insight into. So I'm so glad that we have her on the show to talk about Psalm 82 together today. As you're listening, if you enjoy the show, just take a quick pause to share the show with a friend or colleague or whatnot, just using the share button on your podcast player app of choice. And that gets the word out about the show to others. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. You can find ways to support the show there. We just kind of run this DIY ourselves and I don't see a penny of that, but that goes to uh, my production team behind the scenes who see this as a ministry and do it as a labor of love, but a little bit of compensation doesn't hurt. Uh, so if you'd be willing to consider supporting the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. And there's a few different ways you can support the show there. So with that said, enjoy this conversation with Carmen. All right. Let's jump in. Thanks, Carmen, again for doing this. Uh, Psalm 82, right? That's right. We landed on, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Psalm 82. Would you read it in whatever translation you wish?
1: Sure. I'm going to read from my own translation. Yay! It's a kind of a wooden translation Perfect. because I'm trying to convey what's going on in the Hebrew. Perfect. So it's not fantastic English, but it, it should walk us through the issues.
0: That's a great place to start. That's great. Thank you. All right.
1: Psalm 82, a sum of Asaph. God stands in the assembly of gods. In the midst of gods, he renders judgment. How long will you defend evildoers and the faces of the wicked? Will you lift up? Defend the powerless and fatherless for the afflicted and poor uphold righteousness. Bring to safety the powerless and needy. From the hand of the wicked, deliver them. They do not know and they do not discern. In darkness, they walk around. All the foundations of the earth will be shaken. As for me, I will say, you are gods and the sons of Elion, all of you. Therefore, like humanity, you will die. And like one of the princes, you will fall. Rise up, God. Judge the earth, for you yourself possess all the nations.
0: Ah, the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks as always for your word, for the ways that you are at work, the ways that that has been seen and borne witness to in the past, in stories and songs. And Father, we trust that you're still at work, working among us even now. And so we ask that as we ponder This psalm, this poem, this song, that you would empower us and equip us to perceive the truth that is coming through these words. So we trust our conversation, too, and ask that it would be helpful and edifying and equipping for those who are listening in. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Carmen, thanks for... Reading your translation, there are definitely a number of places where you chose to go with like what it actually says instead of mm-hmm. all the, all the little, the little tricks that the translations do to make you not get distracted by some of the strange
1: it's ways a strange of speaking.
0: One.
1: This one, this psalm. Did I give you
0: choices and you chose it? I think I that's what happened. It. I, love I it. I did
1: choose it. This psalm is one that I think kind of exposes how cross-cultural it is for us to read the Bible. Because we come to this and we're like, what in the world is going on? And I've had students who all seemed like they were half asleep in Psalms class. And we came to Psalm 82 and all of a sudden they were like, wait, what? What did, what did you just say? What did the Bible just say? And and I had students staying after class in a long block class, you know, like a 6 to 9 p.m. class in the evening. And they were like staying late because they were so jazzed at talking about the things that they heard. So I thought it would be a fun one to talk about.
0: Well, that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad you picked it. So, well, I mean, you want to start right out of the gate with, well, I guess not right out of the gate. Well, that's the anti, the anti <laughs> is the in- inscription, <laughs> but the first, the first full line,
1: mm-hmm.
0: God taking his stand among the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think I don't have any, yeah, I, I have very few Translations I'm looking around at some I have here that that yeah. make the choice to to translate it the way it's quite clearly stated. Yeah, so. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I did a little. I did a quick survey. Oh yeah, of translations just using my Bible software to see like how are different translations rendering this, and it's so we've we've got the word Elohim twice in verse one. God stands and in the midst of gods, it's both Elohim, and then we have in the assembly of gods, which is L. Short for Elohim, so Elohim stands in the assembly of L. In the midst of Elohim, he renders judgment. So we've got three potential things to translate there relating to God. And the NIV has gods in quotation marks for that second line. In the midst of gods, he renders judgment. Like Lower they want case, you to know, like G. it's lowercase and it's in quote marks. As these if, don't as count, if to like, right? These don't count. <laughs>
0: And there's no clue of any kind like that in the original, right? That's no, all no, no,
1: it's just, place. it's just a, yeah. it's the same word Elohim that we always hear. NLT has heavenly beings, which is their way of acknowledging this is Elohim, but it's not the Elohim. And then the ESV and NRSV both have gods, lowercase, uh, in the midst of God. So, they're just, they're just giving it, it like it is. But what do we do with this? Like, are there actually other gods? Is that what the psalm is saying? And for a lot of Christians, one of the first lessons they learned was there's only one God. And monotheism is like the cornerstone of our faith. And so Psalm 82 really rattles that.
0: Yeah. So tell me why that's, I mean, I, I, I know how I might answer this question, but I'm <laughs> much more interested in how you would. I mean, wouldn't someone be inclined to say, well, isn't that the first thing any Israelite? would learn, you know, the Lord God mm-hmm. is one, or you shall have no other gods before me. Like, walk yeah. me through, because these texts have come to have this kind of philosophical, or, or uh, that's the wrong term, a metaphysical monotheism, right? Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. About the existence of only one God. Those, right. those, those texts have taken on that sheen for a lot of Western Christians. So, walk me through why that wouldn't be an obvious conflict.
1: Yeah, I mean... So you mentioned the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, which is the statement that every Jew would have said multiple times a day, um, every every morning and evening, they're reciting this um, hero Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Our English translations have often given it this kind of metaphysical oneness, like Yahweh is one. I actually really like how the New Living Translation renders the Shema. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's... um, I'll take a look. Yeah, yeah. You can look it up. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone is how they render it, I think. So, it's a strange sentence in Hebrew. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. And you've got to supply the verbs and figure out where they go which is a normal way of communicating in Hebrew they don't normally use the the verb is they just imply it so depending on who's reading it there there's some disagreement about where the ises go so Yahweh is our god Yahweh alone is a very different statement than Yahweh is our god Yahweh is one so is that a statement about the oneness the unity of god there's only one god or is it saying Yahweh is the only God you ought to be worshiping, which is technically not a monotheistic statement, but it's a henotheistic statement, or monolatry is the other word I've heard for it. Uh. So you're worshiping one, not that there is only one. And and all of this, if somebody is listening and their head is like scrambling, they're they're like looking for where's the heresy button on my podcast app. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let me maybe hasten to say that part of our problem is the word Elohim in Hebrew, which we usually translate as God in English, does not quite mean in Hebrew what we mean by when we say God. So we use the word God as a singular divine being who rules all, but the term Elohim in Hebrew, it has a broader compass to it. It includes any resident of the divine realm or the heavenly realm. So angels could be called Elohim. Like they, they belong in the category known as Elohim. Elohim are the spirit beings you can't see. So as soon as we clarify that, then we can come back to verse one.
0: So then the irony is like the cheating is that the translations are doing is deciding to name the first L as special and distinct as it yes. is the kind of lowercase like in some sense this is all just a bunch of gods competing for our attention yes and
1: (laughs) although i wouldn't say it's cheating because there are these subtle clues in the hebrew that tell us who is promoted and who's demoted in the sentence like it says elohim stands in the assembly of gods and the verb stands is singular like it's as if it has a singular subject so the word elohim in hebrew is technically a plural word it has the plural ending im. But it's a singular verb. So now we know we're talking about the one God. So big G God stands in the assembly of L. That one's a little more ambiguous. That's
0: tricky because that's the assembly singular.
1: of L you could you could render. I mean that the New English translation just says assembly of L. NLT has heaven's court. Mm-hmm. NRSV has divine council. The basic idea is there's this hangout spot where all the residents of the divine realm hang out and talk about stuff.
0: That scene in the opening of Job, I often think of as a kind of, just because it's more narrative. Because usually this kind of imagery is more common in in poetic settings, right? I mean, we often don't get full narratives of the dealings in the heavens. But you get it there in Job, and it's very helpful then for someone who's foreign to that. Because right. poetry assumes a lot more. A narrative gives you a little bit more.
1: Yeah, that scene in the opening of Job is, is bizarre because we're like watching things unfold in the divine council. So we have <laughs> Yahweh talking to angels. They're like coming and going. There's all this activity going on in the heavenly court. And God is like inviting deliberation and conversation about things. So, that gives us, a, I think, a, a decent glimpse is, as to what an ancient Israelite would have imagined is going on in the divine council. So, the psalmist in Psalm 82 is saying that God, Elohim, big G, God, stands in the assembly, this assembly, in the midst of Elohim, which here we have our clue that it should be lowercase g because it's in the midst of, and you can't be in the midst of one person. Right, you're in the midst of plural gotcha. gods.
0: So it's it's the the grammar's doing a lot of the work.
1: Yes, it's the, not grammar the nouns. Is doing the work. Okay, so it's, would be yeah. cheating
0: if it was just a list of nouns,
1: right? And it's not just a list of nouns. We've got grammar here telling us. And I, what I think is striking here, I, I didn't notice this until even just prepping for our conversation, is that the idea that God stands up in this assembly to render judgment implies that here's how Eaton puts it in his commentary, which is quoted by Tucker and Grant in the NIV application commentary, he says, the enthroned God now stands to announce his verdict. So, normally we would imagine God sitting on his throne. That's an anthropomorphic way of thinking about God, but he's sitting on his throne in the assembly. For him to stand up means he's ready to pronounce or announce the verdict on, you know, are we dealing with innocence or guilt? And the rest of the psalm kind of bears out what that looks like. But right off the bat, if you're going to preach this text, you've got you're going to have a lot of people in the congregation scratching their heads. You know what? What do you mean gods plural? What's the assembly of the gods? Where would that be? And so this this text is going to take some backstory to take some prep to help people enter into it. And I think Job 1 would be a really good way of doing that, of saying, hey, you've heard this story before. Here's a psalm that's kind of playing with that imagery and taking it to the next level.
0: Yeah, it occurs to me hearing you say that, I I must admit, again, you know, there's better and worse ways to translate something like Deuteronomy 6. Mm -hmm. But actually, the first commandment actually only makes sense uh, in this framework, it right? only
1: makes sense if there's more than one option. And
0: weirdly, when you've when I was growing up, you always ended up saying you ended up returning to the henotheistic point in order to teach this to children. Yeah, by by way of analogy, you'd say, "Well, obviously, right. there's no other gods, but like you know, your TV might be your god. <laughs> you're like right, your your friends are your god. Right? You end up in order for the moral punch, yeah, of the first commandment, yeah, for it to even land." You end up having to return at least to the ethos of henotheism, right? of, of competing attention, competing. And I mean, now, of course, there are reasons why Jews as well uh, in later years, many Jews, you know, came to explore the, the a sort of metaphysical
1: mm-hmm. notion
0: of monotheism. Yep. Yep. It's not the explicit teaching and certainly not the mental background of the Hebrew yeah. Bible. Right,
1: right. You could argue that there's a gradual progression towards monotheism by the end of the Old Testament. It's as if, it's not that there's more primitive ideas in the beginning, and then they develop later. I, I don't think of it like that. I think of it as really for all practical purposes, there's only one God. Because who is the king of all? These other residents of the divine realm are so much less than Yahweh It's not even really worth comparing them. So let's not even use the same word. So then you have statements in a book like Isaiah saying, there's no one like me. No one can compare to me. That's the more sort of monotheism we're used to. But I think you're exactly right. When God says to the people at Sinai, you shall have no other gods before me. He's not saying there are no other gods. He's saying whatever options you come across leave them aside and worship only me.
0: Yeah. And in context, kind of looking back, I mean, he's looking back at these plagues, which were the defeat of the various gods of Egypt. Yes. It almost just seems like overkill. If you just bring the baggage of modern mono or even not even modern, just even kind of ancient monotheism. If you bring that to the table, it's like, why is God beating up on creation? It's his creation, right? It's like, well, he's not, he's defeating the gods that have been, the sort of deification of these various aspects of God's good creation.
1: Yep. Yeah. I think it's Exodus 12, 12, where it, it says, I will, I will pass yep. judgment on the gods of Egypt.
0: Yep. 12, which um, actually fits really well here because yeah. of the standing up and rendering judgments right. on gods right. that actually yep. parallels in terms of narrative parallels, which are always helpful for readers who are at a distance where the, the, it's harder to read between the lines when it's Mm -hmm. not, when it's not your own sort of culture out of which this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't tend to see idols around town. Most of us don't live in contexts where there's people worshiping a lot of other gods openly, but for the ancient Israelites, that was the whole question, which God is responsible for fertility where you live. Is it Baal? Is it Marduk? Is it Isis? Is it Ray? Is it coasts? There's all these gods being worshipped by the surrounding nations. And so for the psalmist to say that God stands in the assembly of El, in the midst of gods, he renders judgment. The, the one who stands is the primary, most powerful God. And in context of the other psalms, we can conclude that it's Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. And so then the claims being made by this particular psalm are the, are all the more striking because it's over and against the gods being worshipped by other nations.
0: Yeah, well, let's get into, I mean, in a way we've only just uh, set the scene, but it's absolutely necessary. So, yeah, yeah, let's get into the claims that God makes for himself in the the remainder after a quick break. So, let's take a quick break. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with uh, Carmen Eines, and we're looking at Psalm 82. Um, I'll read it a second time just to get it fresh in our guest's ears. This is from Robert Alter's translation. Mm. So, Psalm 82, an Asaph psalm. God takes his stand in the divine assembly. In the midst of the gods, he renders judgment. Quote, how long will you judge dishonestly and show for favor to the wicked do justice to the poor and the orphan vindicate the lowly and the wretched free the poor and the needy from the hand of the wicked save them. They do not know and do not grasp in darkness they walk about all the earth's foundations totter. As for me, I had a thought, you were gods, the sons of the Most High were you all. Yet indeed, like humans, you shall die, and like one of the princes, fall. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you hold in estate all the nations. Mm. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So just a quick structural point before we jump back in.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, what's I mean, for anyone who's listening and they've got their Bible open, they can see this very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but for anyone, I mean, I don't know about you, but I do a lot of my podcasts listening while I'm doing chores or on a jog right. or in the car. So this is not as easy to hear as it is to see just this basic structure of this opening verse that's of a narrative character kind of setting the scene and then really verse two through seven. I mean, we can debate this, but seem to all be words on the lips of God pronouncing the judgment, almost Oracle like, I mean, we can debate uh, if that changes at, at six or not, but that's at least one way. And then there's clearly verse eight. There's a shift of some kind when there's a speaking to God, God is the kind of, so the the clearest shifts would be, you know, one and eight both stand apart as kind of a narrative and a kind yeah. of petition, I guess, a prayer, as it were. And then either an oracle that's all of two through seven, or maybe you break up the oracle. I mean, maybe we can start there.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, it was clear in Alter's translation that verse two begins the quotation, so it must be God talking. Where does his end quote come?
0: He runs the whole thing as oracle from two to seven. Okay. So there are other, I mean, obviously there's other ways to break it up, but I, I was thinking for our listeners to be like, no one thinks verse eight's the Oracle, I assume. Right. 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 <laughs> the the opening line is there's some kind of setting up, um, but the debate then would kick in and in. Where to break up the oracle, but. yeah,
1: who is speaking to whom is the question, and
0: the to whom is the really interesting one? yeah, it's like this sounds like the stuff you'd say to maybe the kings or to nations of the earth,
1: well, yeah, and but it and seems I,
0: directed maybe to the other gods i don't, i'm I'm just yeah. like very, very confused on that, so enlighten us, please <laughs> well.
1: <laughs> I came to this psalm partway through a semester on the psalms where I was teaching students how to do psalm analysis. And one of the first questions we ask is, what type of psalm is this? Is it a praise? It is, a lament? is it a lament? Is it something else? So, laments make up 40% of the Psalter. And this has some elements of lament in it, namely, a com- seems like a complaint in verse 2. You could take verse 2 as a complaint. And there's some petitions in verses three and four and verse eight. So, so just coming at it like after having read a lot of other psalms, my initial thought was that this was a lament and the psalmist was complaining to God for not defending evildoers. But so I checked some commentaries. Like it's possible that the psalmist is speaking to God, and John Golden Gay's commentary takes that approach. He says that um, the the psalmist is like a prophet who intervenes in the meeting of the assembly to confront the gods who are gathered there. So it's like the psalmist shows up and is like, hey, y'all, how long will you defend evildoers and the faces of wicked will you lift up? So that's Golden Gay. But the the NICOT commentary, so that this chapter is done by Beth LeNeal Tanner, and the NIVAC commentary, NIV application commentary by Tucker and Grant, they both see verses two through seven as Yahweh speaking to the Elohim. And I think I'm I'm leaning in that direction in light of what we already said about verse one, that Elohim stands and renders judgment. It sort of seems like he stood up and he's about ready to speak.
0: Yeah, that's the clue for me, yeah. is that, that judgment being rendered.
1: I may even need to shift my own translation a bit to reflect that because you know, the more time you spend with it, the more you kind of see what's going on rhetorically. So, if we take that approach that God is speaking to the the other gods, to the the minor gods, if you will, in the assembly, um, he's calling them to account because they've failed to maintain justice. So, how long will you defend evildoers and the faces of the wicked will you lift up? So, God's complaining or indicting the gods for their lack of justice. And then verses three and four are his, rather than being a petition by the psalmist, they would be God's charge to the gods. Defend the powerless and fatherless for the afflicted and poor uphold righteousness. Bring to safety the powerless and needy from the hand of the wicked. Deliver them. This is your job, y'all, and you haven't been doing it. Then we get to verse five and it gets muddy again. They do not know and they do not discern. In darkness, they walk around. Is this talking about the gods failing to do their job? They're not discerning what is right? Or is this talking about the afflicted and the poor, the powerless and the needy who need someone to come in and show them the way? Because they're walking around in darkness. It's not terribly clear to me. Um, Some translations make this very clear let me pull it up again. I was just looking at this. It seemed like some of them make this about the gods. The NIV says the gods know nothing. They understand nothing, but it doesn't say the gods in verse five in the Hebrew. It just says they do not know and they do not discern. So the NIV committee there is assuming that the they refers back to the assembly of gods that was introduced in verse one. They're just clarifying that that's how they're reading it.
0: Yeah, what's tricky there is if if you take verses two through four as an oracle directed at the Elohim, then of course you have the problem of a switch to the third person plural, which is not really a problem. It happens all the time mm-hmm. in the Psalms, but there there isn't a solution that that uh, that's super clean, you know, because because well, verse yeah. five seems like an indictment as well of some kind. So it seems strange to. Uh, it could to, be. It could be the wicked, maybe. It the could poor and be needy, an indictment. It seems like a bummer. If I guess it wouldn't uh, have to yeah. be an indictment. It could be the wicked at the end of verse four.
1: Yeah, you want to like have the nearest antecedent, right? Of That's like what, who, yeah. who's the they? So so that they could be the wicked. That they could be the powerless and needy, powerless and fatherless, afflicted and poor.
0: Which, if this wasn't poetry, I'd just say, "Well, go with the nearest antecedent." But you know, with poetry.
1: It's That's not, not always, a good rule,
0: actually. It's never, yeah. you know, it's probably, the, if, if you took that as a rule, you'd have as many exceptions as you would cases that follow it, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's too.
1: I think that the nice thing is, if you're preaching this text, the message of the overall the song is yeah. quite clear. Yeah. Yes. So whether the afflicted and poor are in darkness, and they need somebody to render good judgment for them. Like to vindicate them or to to argue on their behalf, or whether it's the gods who are walking around in darkness and they need to be judged. Like it, it can work either way. So I would say whatever translation you're preaching from, whatever your congregation has in front of them, go with that and just, just explain go with that. how Muddy that works. It up. Yeah, that, how yeah. that works coherently. But just know that because people are following along on their phones or they brought their own translation with them, some of them are going to be looking at a text that looks different, and they might be like, whoa, where did you get that? So, you might want to just kind of guide, as you guide people through it, acknowledge where the other translations might differ and why that might be, because you could have somebody who's kind of new at this, who walks away feeling like, oh, the Bible is a choose-your-own-adventure, Mm. nobody really knows what it means. And nobody's Bible even says the same thing. So we can't trust it. And Uh, that would be the wrong conclusion, right? Like you want to try
0: 82 becomes a really good case where that impression can be left.
1: Yeah. So it, I think this is where pastoral sensitivity comes in, like to nuance things and to really help guide people along on how do you know if you can trust your text? Well, the NIV made a judgment call in verse five, that this is talking about the gods. And that was one plausible way of reading it, but whether you read it that way or whether you read along with another translation, like the NRSV that doesn't specify, it just says they have neither knowledge nor understanding, and it doesn't tell you who they is. Either way, the overall message of the psalm as, a, as an indictment against injustice and a call to do justly, like that part's clear. Yeah. So we're not, we're not looking at like a major doctrinal fallout here. If you pick a different antecedent for that word,
0: yeah, there's enough of that in the semantics and syntax of verse one, right?
1: Right. (laughs) There's enough controversy
0: there. No use adding. There's a lot of
1: controversy in this song, but but I think you know before someone just decides I'm not going to preach this psalm, I'll pick an Mm -hmm. easier text. Like I would just encourage people to take the risk because. So oh, often people don't,
0: Do it. Yeah. people don't
1: go to church to just, they don't want to just keep hearing things they've already heard before. This is like my students staying late after class. This could really grab people's attention and go, wait, the Bible is actually more interesting and more controversial than I realized. And I want to read it. I want to see this for myself. So there's a, there's a risk factor in preaching difficult texts, but I think this one with some patience could pay off.
0: Yeah, linked with that, let me just ask you a quick question before we go to our second break, and that's just—it's jumping back to to where we were earlier, but it all kind of fits together. I hope mm-hmm. I, I appreciated and and concur actually deeply with you when you say it may not need it may not need to be thought of as a progression from a more primitive henotheism mm-hmm. to a more sort of philosophically astute monotheism. I, I, I don't find that to be a helpful way of narrating it. Yeah, although there is a development of some kind, but yeah. I'm wondering. And you tell me what you think of this. It's just thinking about, could it be that a more monotheistic uh, approach was maybe more fitting in the context of exile? Mm-hmm. Okay, is that yeah. is that a common thought in the in the literature and debates that that you run circles that you run in? Because I'm just I'm thinking through it philosophically as a kind of theologian and thinking like sure. Okay so yeah if you're trying to form a community who just kind of came out from one one the world of Egyptian slavery and you're kind of establishing and occasionally having to rid your community of the the constant temptation mm-hmm. of these other gods the framework of well there's the good one who's in charge and then all these interlopers mm-hmm. That, that fits the politics, the, the mm-hmm. sort of theo, the, 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 theo politics of the, yeah, of sure. Israel. But sure. like in exile, where like the gods, these other gods are like kind of impressive. They seem to be running things, right? You're, they're not, whereas versus the, a central, you know, a God that's associated with king and country in Israel, henotheism's less distressing. Whereas like, I think like is the, the later pro, you know, like those passages in Isaiah, other than, the incomparable one, the the bits where they just like make fun of idols, yeah, as if like ah, oh, it's all just made up. You know, again, that's that can work with henotheism, but there's a kind of there's a rhetoric of like actually, all this stuff's just made up, and we follow the real God. Yeah, I don't know. Is that is that resonating with your theories of these things?
1: I do think that the exilic context changes the rhetoric, um, and that this making fun of of the gods of Babylon or Assyria actually participates in a sort of political rhetoric that may even be overstated from the perspective of the prophet himself.
0: Right. Like the prophet right? may be thinking henotheistically behind it, but right. it may have contributed to a kind of monotheistic thrust. We
1: overstate things in yeah. to make a point. Yeah. And I don't really think, you know, okay, so it's been said that these polemics against idol idols or idolatry in in Isaiah is completely out of touch from how Assyrians and Babylonians actually thought about Id- idols. Like they didn't actually think that wood was the god. Yeah, of so course it not. doesn't right. actually yeah. reflect how what they believed. But it's a great way to make fun of somebody, right? It's a great way of showing the incomparability incom- of Yahweh. Like we don't even have a wood thing we're bowing down to because. He's so above that, so I, I think actually Psalm eighty two is might be a really important transition point between
0: Ooh. between
1: these two stages, right? So, I
0: see it. Okay. So,
1: okay. So if you go back to Deuteronomy that, yeah, yeah, Deuteronomy thirty two is where this idea maybe is more most clearly expressed: the idea that there are other gods. So Deuteronomy thirty two is the song that Moses sings to the Israelites at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry before he dies. And it's a very sad song. It's all about how they're going to screw up and going to be unfaithful. But one of the, one of the most bizarre parts of it is in verse eight. It says, when the most high gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, so that inheritance isn't like a sum of money, but this is thinking like a land allotment. Right. So the most high... Is like, like will dividing, happen in Joshua
0: a few chapters yes, later, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. is
1: dividing up the earth and telling people where to live. He divides up mankind to live on these different plots of land. He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of, and in the NIV, it says Israel, but the Hebrew text actually says God here, according to the number of the sons of God. The Dead Sea Scrolls also says God. The Septuagint also says God. Why do we have Israel in English?
0: do any of the masoretes had they changed it to israel i'm trying to remember now we're doing now we're doing on the fly uh
1: on the fly textual criticism i mean i know that
0: the oldest manuscripts that's definitely the right move because of course uh later developments and, you know there's definitely a monotheistic uh, uh, orientation emerges in second temple judaism which could affect these yes yeah, so of I'm rabbis, at but
1: my bhs
0: this is and- great radio todd if you want to cut this out you can
1: <laughs> the sons of God, the sons of God, this, the angels of God is what the LXX says. Interesting. So,
0: <laughs> the angels of God. That's another.
1: Right. Because attempt and
0: escape. Right. And that's kind yeah. of
1: like the NLT's so, heavenly beings. Um, yes. They're recognizing that not everything that's called an Elohim is actually a God. Big case G. So, yeah. So on the fly, it's a, it's a little bit.
0: Sorry uh, to look that out. S- no, that's fine. Well, it's more the, the, the greater point is that this is already creating. It's not like this isn't like a 20th century problem. Like this is <laughs> right. already, Clearly. even at the time already in the new Testament, as we may mention in our third <laughs> segment, this text is a tricky one even as it's quoted by Jesus in in John 10.
1: Right, and the the ancient versions are clearly wrestling with what to do with this. And so so my point is that in Moses' song, there's the sense that God divided up land allotments for different nations, and he did it according to the number of the sons of God, which if that's referring to either lesser gods or angelic figures, there's a sense in which God is assigning angels or assigning a divine being to like, administer each of these land allotments that that seems to be what's going on here and and yet the problem is the people of god or the israelites are going to end up worshipping idols and worshipping what's not god so so the, as the song goes on they desert the one true god and they begin bowing down to idols or false gods so if that's like stage 1 god divides up the land He appoints divine rulers over each area. Then Psalm 82 is God standing up in the divine council and saying, yo, you have not done what I assigned you to do. You were supposed to defend the powerless and fatherless. You were supposed to uphold righteousness for the afflicted and the poor. You were supposed to bring the powerless and needy to safety, but instead you have exploited people you've worked things out for your own gain and you've received glory that wasn't yours. So then we get to Isaiah and we're in the time of the exile and the prophets are like don't even give any attention to these gods they're not gods at all. Like they've abdicated their responsibility.
0: Yeah, and they're being deposed. They're being by deposed, God, right? Yes. Yeah. So
1: so they were removed. this is like a
0: stewardship that they've failed to fulfill. And which actually maps on really nice with, especially the way Deuteronomy talks about election, uh, mm. but just election in general, right? Mm. Is as if God divides up the whole world according to all these gods and says, well, I'll keep one just for me, right? <laughs> yeah. As if he's sort yeah. of like demoting himself to just being a national God, mm. but that wasn't mm. his kind of like, you know, that's not his primordial identity and not, and that's not the end of the story. Yeah. That seems to map on kind of nicely. And then, and it then. Does. It, their failure on that part makes like, okay, it's like, roll up my sleeves. I guess I got to be the creator too, who runs everything. You guys didn't run it right. I mean, that's, that's a little silly, but you get the point.
1: And then back to Psalm 82 verses six and seven is this pronouncement. Like you are gods and the sons of the most high, all of you, but like humanity, you're going to die. And like one of the princes, you will fall. So you were here, but I'm bringing you down because you failed to do what I assigned you to do.
0: So Carmen, so Carmen, you're grinning because you see me grinning. (laughs) We got to come up with a new term right now and then we'll do our break. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm having way too much fun. This is great. Okay. So if there's the henotheism that's so almost perfectly, although it's a kind of, it's a complicated henotheism back in Deuteronomy, right? Yeah. And then you got the sort of incipient monotheism emerging in the the prophets in the exilic period. Yeah. Then it'd be interesting to think of this, a way of naming the kind of this transitional view you know mm. what i mean as mm. if, because it's almost what needs to be named is this kind of it's as if like cuz like you say if they're going to die right mm. it's as if it's as mm. if for for us say if, if if as as a believer in the scriptures i'm mm. going to say okay this is this is the world i live in this is this is in however poetically describing the real world Okay, so I live in a world where there is only one God. I was taught correctly as a child in Sunday school. It's just there used to be more. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but they're dying off, or they've been killed off, or they've been deposed. Yeah. They've lost. I mean, I don't yeah. want to get too mythological and metaphysical, but there's almost the kind of, and, it, and it's interesting to call it transitional because it's almost the kind of eschatology. Uh, you know, I, I can't help but think of. The way I mean, this is this is unhelpful, but I'll just throw it out there. The way that one of the theologians I study, Carl Bart, talks about evil has no future mm, way anyway, mm. of talking about. So, like, he's kind of a, you know, he has a kind of, you know, kind of a privation of the good understanding that's pretty standard in Western theology, Augustine, all that. But he kind of frames it more eschatologically. It's like, yeah, yeah like evil has all kinds of substance now, but, but it's it it's, it's not gonna forever. Yeah and and, and the final death blow has already been made in the in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't want to read Bart into Psalm 82, please god forbid. But <laughs> just to say like the notion of a kind of that their divine status is not a sort of permanent metaphysical fact.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but
0: uh, but one that's granted or temporary or And
1: then maybe revoked.
0: Revoked, yeah. right? Yeah. So I mean, we probably won't be able to come up with the version of theism this is. But if you got a cool name for it, let me Leave
1: know. Leave it to a systematic theologian to want a name for it.
0: Oh, of course, <laughs> uh, busted, busted. That I, I frame I that whole just, thing as a label. Who cares I was about? just I don't over need a label. here.
1: I was just over <laughs> here thinking about other texts. This reminded me of like Ezekiel twenty-eight, where God's giving through Ezekiel oracles against the king of Tyre. And he makes himself out to be like a God, but like a human, he's going to die. I mean, it's very similar language to verse 6 in Ezekiel 28. So people can go check it out. I'm always thinking of texts. My systematic friends are thinking of labels. I'm not so good with labels. Busted.
0: Busted. (laughs) Well, you used them precisely when when you spoke of henotheism (laughs) and monotheism. You just... Yeah. So... Like that was a,
1: the that was the end of my label. Yeah, like
0: all my <laughs> like all my Bible scholar friends, they just take their labels for granted and don't interrogate them and come up with
1: new ones. <laughs> sure, sure. Oh
0: man. <laughs> oh, but I, I I guilty as charged. I wanted a label, but
1: if people are interested in exploring this whole yes, idea more of the divine council, the Deuteronomy thirty two and how that fits in, Michael Heiser is the world's leading expert on that. That information, that part of scripture. He has a book called *The Unseen Realm* that I've read; that's really fascinating. He has another book called *Reversing Herman* that I think does more with this like idea of the divine council, kind of what is going on in terms of biblical theology with the unseen realm. Um, I haven't read that one, but it's on my list, so so people can explore that more. There are other views out there, right? So so. I, as I approach texts like this, I have sort of two theologians or two biblical scholars sitting on either shoulder. I have Michael Heiser on one shoulder who's telling me, these people thought there was a divine council, and there was, and we, we, can, un, we can understand the inner workings of it the more we read. And connect the dots between passages and then read intertestamental literature like the Book of Enoch kind of fills in some of the gaps for us. And then the the Bible scholar on my other shoulder is John Walton, who says they thought there was a divine council, but that was just a matter of accommodation to an ancient Near Eastern worldview. There actually aren't other gods. There's no divine council. This is just God's attempt to communicate to them in ways they can understand, or it's their Sort of imagining what was happening, so we can't read too much into it. So those are the two, like two of my mentors who disagree on this issue, but who both talk about the divine council. Um, and and most of the church is just over over in another whole room, not even hearing this conversation because they didn't even ever notice the divine council in scripture.
0: And eighty percent of the time, it's not their fault because the translations has hit, have hidden it from them. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, right? I mean, often. So yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much. Let's let's take a quick break and come back and, and draw this to a close with some application. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Carmen Imes, and we are looking at Psalm eighty-two. Psalm eighty-two. Been having a fun conversation with you today about the text and the ideas and the world that it that it represents. Let's explore some sermon starters. If anyone's preaching or teaching on this text uh, sooner or later, what thoughts or ideas or suggestions or encouragements might you have for them?
1: Yeah, in verse five, the last line of verse five, we didn't really talk about, but it's all the foundations of the earth will be shaken. And I feel like we don't have very far to look today to find the world being shaken in so many different areas, right? Like you can think of wars in other countries you can think of politics legislation changes in the united states you can think of gun violence there are so many things that that what the pandemic has done to us as a society sort of collectively shaken us and kind of it's it reminds me of that game i don't know if you've played boggle i used to play boggle at my grandma's play it all house. the
0: time yeah. I still play it with my kids. <laughs> I really? love it. It's a yeah, yeah. wonderful so, game.
1: So it's got all these little cubes with letters on them and you like shake, you shake the little box. It has like a clear lid over it and you shake it. And then all of the, the letters fall down in different places and you're supposed to make words. And it feels to me like the pandemic has shaken the world, like a boggle game and Things are landing in different places and new words can be written now and new, there's like new possibilities, new challenges. And when I look at this Psalm, I see God holding divine beings accountable, angelic beings accountable for their failure to do justice. And I think we probably don't spend enough time thinking about how well we're doing at this. This is from John Hilbers, he wrote the section in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. So, he, he wrote the section on the Psalms. And so, he says, divine retribution reaches into both the human and heavenly realms in order to vindicate victims of injustice and oppression. So, we're watching wow. it. We're watching this happen in the divine realm in Psalm 82. But we we shouldn't think that God doesn't also care about our responses to injustice and oppression. On Earth, so I spend all my time in Exodus. So I think about this a lot and how God hears the cries of the oppressed. Um, in, in fact, just today I was working on uh, the great a great cry went up in Egypt after the death of the firstborn, and it's the same word for cry as you had in chapter three when God heard the cries of the Israelites because they were oppressed, and now through a series of of plagues. Pharaoh has shown he's unresponsive, and he as an earthly ruler has continued to uh, do the opposite of what Psalm 82 is calling us to do, right? He He's he's oppressing the powerless and the afflicted and the poor and the needy. He's making life harder for them, and so God makes it so that he's the one who's expressing this great cry of distress. But then in Exodus twenty-two 23, we're at Sinai. God's giving the law to his people, and he says, if you oppress someone else and they cry out, I will hear that cry and I will be so mad, I will kill you. So there's this really interesting progression, just paying attention to the cries of the oppressed. God hears the cries of the oppressed. So if we're the oppressed, that's good news. If we're the oppressor, that is not good news. Um, and I think this psalm is, is then calling us, you know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer Um, that that God's kingdom would be on earth as it is in heaven. This is giving us a glimpse of God's heavenly kingdom, where he is calling down, he's removing leaders from their roles because of their failure to work justice. And if we're praying on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that God will call rulers down from their thrones who fail to protect the vulnerable. So I just think this is a, like this is a text that preaches, like that it calls us into, into that kind of um, radical rethinking of the status quo. So I want to I want to close with a quote from the NIV Application Commentary. So this is Volume Two. It was co-written by Dennis Tucker and Jamie Grant, and they say this on page two twenty-six. Psalm 82 is a stark warning to the church today, particularly to the church in the comfortable, developed world. There is only one standard by which our societies are assessed by God, how we care for the weak, the poor, the marginalized, the voiceless, and the disenfranchised. God judges our societies today, and Psalm 82 gives us the standard by which he views the success or failure of our communities. Whether we have cable or multiplex cinemas is not high on God's list of priorities, but how we care for the single mother or the troubled teenager is.
0: It's beautiful. It's a clear call for justice for us to cooperate with God in justice and to, to beg God in prayer, like the last line does to render this just judgment arise. Mm -hmm. Oh God. I love that after, especially, especially with the image of, And I wonder if I'm thinking about in a sermon, like, you know, you can get people all riled up. Okay, go out and do some justice. But let's pause and say, okay, who's the one who really knows and sees what's just? Yes. And let's beg him to be the one engaging justice, but commit to cooperate with him. It's not to get us off the hook. Right, right. But to to clasp our hands in prayer as the first act of the uprising against evil. To arise after saying that God takes a stand than to yes. ask God to arise to judge the earth and that you hold in a state all the nations in a way captures mm-hmm. that imagery from Deuteronomy again. It
1: does. Yeah. Now right? It's see like as if
0: he's God lent possesses these nations. Yeah. But yeah. the holding in a state as if to, I mean, the language there. Yeah. This notion that, you know, they're kinda of, they're all his. He's kind of lent them or given them or allotted yeah. them, however temporarily, to these various divine beings, who are then often in many cultures seen as represented in the kings and rulers. Yeah. That all that temporary, Lord, we know you're the one who's really behind all of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I love how verse one and verse eight then become like bookends for the whole psalm because we talked at the beginning about God standing in the assembly of the gods. Yeah. But now the psalmist is praying, Rise up, O God, and judge, judge the, the earth. earth. Yes. So that's where you get Woo! as it is in heaven, let it be on yes. earth. Yes. Like oh, your kingdom man. come.
0: You almost just want to be like, Yeah, this preach this text and, and just pray the Lord's Prayer. If you've already prayed it yeah. earlier in the service, pray it again in a new different way with it with an ear and heart and voice attuned to, to that alignment of heaven and earth.
1: And knowing too, just that God makes humans as his image and, and that humanity is designed to steward creation and to rule on God's behalf. In in Genesis one, it's really clear male and female, you're going to rule over creation. And so it isn't a stretch to see a parallel between these gods who were given authority to rule and they, they screwed up. And so that was, it was revoked. To then ask, what's going to happen to the authority to rule that God gave us? Are we being good stewards? Or on the day of judgment, is he going to say, you're out of here? Because you you failed to do the thing I asked you to do. I wasn't giving you power for power's sake. I was giving you power to use on behalf of others to cultivate their flourishing, to protect their flourishing, um, and and make it so that all of creation can reflect the glory of God.
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, thanks so much, Carmen. I had a blast learning from you. I'm sure our listeners loved having you on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Let me add before we go. Yeah, a quick thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Uh, Thanks to all our listeners out there, especially our patron saints who support the show. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can support us there. And with that said... We say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.